Welcome to How Have You Not Seen That? My name is Charles. I'm Wilson. And I'm Crossman. This is a podcast where we admit to um, missing movies in our film catalogs, uh, films that we may have lied about to try to look cool at parties. Um, but uh, here we will be admitting to these movies that we haven't seen and discussing them from a more modern point of view. Uh, so Crossman, you picked The Hustler. Yep. So tell us about that movie. Okay, The Hustler is about pool. Yes. And about a pool shark. Paul Newman and his colleague, I guess, is manager. Hustler. <laughs> Co-hustler. Yes. They're pool hustlers, so they, they go to bars and they pretend that they're bad at pool and then they dupe people into betting on it and then they steal their money basically mm-hmm. uh, and the like the big pool guy is a guy named uh, Minnesota Fats and they've been working up their way to the ladder to challenge minute Minnesota Fats and Paul Newman is actually like a very exceptional pool player and they go to the bar where Minnesota Fats is known to play pool and they, they challenge him, and after a marathon, like, 36-hour session of pool <laughs> games, Paul Newman has uh, drank himself into the ground and is unable to function and loses and loses all of his money. So then him and his uh, fellow pool hustler are kind of, like, stuck in where they're at because they're out of money, and Paul Newman leaves his friend behind? Oh, they're not really... His they partner. don't seem he to be friends. Him, he describes him as his partner. His partner. Okay. Yeah. His partner. He, like, leaves his partner while his partner's sleeping. Yeah. And just kind of drifts about the town and ends up at the bus station. The sort of presumed assumption that he's going to skip town and do whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a woman at the bus station that he kind of falls for. And they have a conversation, and it turns out that she's a college student in the area and also happens to be an alcoholic. And <laughs> they have a, a, a sort of moment, and then Paul Newman falls asleep because he's an alcoholic. Yeah. And then they're both sort of find themselves at a bar <clears throat> later, and they strike up a friendship, and Paul Newman basically, like, moves into her apartment and they do like functioning alcoholism together <laughs> for a sort of like in the indeterminate amount of time yeah. but uh, anywhere between a few days and weeks yes and they actually seem to like kind of hit it off and like support each other and are not doing great but they're like kind of scraping by together paul newman's kind of close to criminal seems to like kind of catch up with him where he decides that he kind of needs to make some money and he goes out to a poker game where he meets up with this other kind of sketchy guy who seems to be kind of like a made man for the area who kind of like bankrolls people who do sketchy activities. George C. Scott. George C. Scott, yes. yes. And then Paul Newman's like, nah, I got this. And he like goes to a local <laughs> pool hall. It's like a union pool hall. And he like gets the crab kicked out of him after trying to hustle people. They break his thumbs. And then he recovers with the help of his girlfriend. Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> and George C. Scott's character... He kind of like acquiesces to the request that he had, where he's like, "Okay, I'm going to like get you back on the circuit." And 
we're going to make a little bit of money and then we're going to make a run at Minnesota Fats. So they go to Kentucky during the Kentucky Derby and a number of things transpire, but like uh, <laughs> his, his girlfriend, Sarah, well, uh, like the exact order of things is like a little wacky, but they like, there's a known pool player in Kentucky at the Derby, um, played by the guy from Strangers on a Train, I believe. No, no. it was played by Murray Hamilton. Who, Murray Hamilton, okay. Who, who we seems... remember from The Graduate and Jaws. Oh, oh, okay. Yes. Cool. He's great. I like. Yeah, he's I like... Mr. Robertson and he's the mayor in Jaws. Oh, cool. Okay, I thought it was a guy from Strangers on a Train because they had a similar, I, I, yeah, I similar they, they looked the same, yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool, I was wrong about that. Um, anyways, the, he challenges him to a game of billiards, yes. which Paul Newman doesn't know, but kind of like gets the hang of... It's all balls and sticks, during, right? During the session. <laughs> and uh, ends up like beating this guy for a lot of money. So that means he's like ready to like really go after Minnesota Pats. Like he's got his like life together, basically. However... However, uh, Sarah, uh, during a, a Kentucky Derby party gets very drunk and she falls asleep and then she ends up like going back to the hotel and then she ends up like sleeping with the George C. Scott character and then she kills herself. And then Paul Newman is just like destroyed by this. So he leaves George C. Scott, makes his way back to the other bar location <laughs> and challenges Minnesota fans and then in another marathon session, like beats him, but then like the George C. Scott character comes in and is like, oh, you have to actually like pay me all this money. Even though I didn't bankroll me, bankroll you, you actually like owe me this money because we had like a agreement. Right. Because he's like a, again, seems like a mafia made man kind of connected right. character. And Paul Newman's like, no. And then he's like, well, don't play pool anywhere in the US because I'll kill you. <laughs> And he walks out. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. The credits start rolling. That is yeah. roughly what happens in The Hustler. Those are the events of The Hustler. Right. So you had not seen... you heard of this? Obviously you'd heard of it if you picked it. I heard of it. I was waffling between this and Cool Hand Luke. I landed on The Hustler because I, I... I wasn't sure about the content of either. So... No, they're I, both like, great. I, I knew The Hustler was about pool and like pool sharking. But I didn't know what the movie was like. It looks like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen Paul Newman in a few things, but mm -hmm. it was cool to like see him in this. Yeah, this is kind of mm -hmm. a, a one of the classic. There's a handful of like classic Paul Newman performances. There's this one, Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Um, and this is. I, I'd seen Butch Cassidy. Okay. Yeah. Um, this thing, which we watched. Yeah. Uh, what would you think of it? I found this kind of perplexing. Really? <laughs> it's a movie. Yeah. Okay. I, I think. Newman, I like his, like, character and that he's kind of, like, a downtrodden character. I was surprised at, like, how, like, real of a depiction this movie was about, like, functioning alcoholism, mm -hmm. which is really what the movie is about. It's, yes. like... <laughs> and, substance abuse. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be, like, a cool, like... Like a Rounders-type movie? Rounders, or, yeah, or, like, Ocean Eleven, or, like... No. Because <laughs> the description yeah. is just, like... They're they're hustlers and they like they're doing. They go hustle people. Yeah, yeah. it's a con job. You get one scene of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds like a fun, like a fun time. Yeah, and this is a, a bummer. <laughs> it really? <laughs> is. Yes, it is. And it takes a like a while to get where it's going. Okay. And like the movie like takes its time with things. Like the marathon, the first like marathon session with Minnesota Fats is Love like. That scene. 
it's like 40 minutes. It, it's, <laughs> it's a good chunk of the movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is long. And I was not yeah. expecting that kind of... Because, again, I was expecting more of like a heist movie. So, like, my expectations of the movie and what it was are totally misaligned. <laughs> and I think that that... I like I I didn't love it because I was expecting like a kind of like the like I wanted like the sting because I was like oh the sting's like fun and sting's like fun. clever and this yeah. is like no this is a serious a, movie yeah this <laughs> is a a real depiction of alcoholism yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what do you think? Of you had not seen this either, right? I had not. Okay. Um, I didn't know that much about it. I think I had pretty much the same reaction as Crossman, where I just felt really perplexed, and I was just kind of bored for a lot of it. But like a lot of the plot points and like you know character beats didn't seem to make sense to me. Um, like you know I wasn't that convinced by Sarah's plot line mm. and like yeah, why'd she cheat on him? I was just like yeah, I mean, and like didn't, I didn't like get the incentive. I didn't understand the scene between her and George C. Scott at the end there, and yeah. then like her killing herself. Like it just seemed kind of strange. But also, if the whole point of the movie is like the human cost of his like competitiveness or whatever, like it doesn't make sense for him to actually like win in the end and kind of be rewarded for like triumphing, uh, and then be sad about her death, right? Like you'd, I think it'd be more effective if he like walked out on Minnesota Fats at all. Yeah, by the end of the movie, you're like, this guy's like a scumbag. <laughs> Yeah, because he's like, still soldiering forward despite what happened. Right? Yeah, it's like I don't want this character to win anymore. Like Minnesota Pat's like has his alcoholism under control much better than yeah. He just seems like a pretty chill character. dude, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. okay. Um, no, I think this is you a really like this. Movie. No, I think this is a fantastic movie. Yeah. I think it's a classic Paul Newman performance. I think that basically every beat of this works, mm-hmm. um, and that it really it's what it. I think it it predicts the 70s American New Wave really well. Um, I, I think this is just masterful filmmaking on every level. Um, and I, but I think there are some important plot beats that maybe didn't land or didn't come across that might clarify some of the stuff that you guys are talking about here. Mm. Um, but I, I have seen this three or four times before now and watching it again the other night landed just as much as, yeah. as it ever did for me. I, I feel I, like there's something about movies from like the earlier era where they convey information <clears throat> a certain way that like doesn't necessarily come across clearly to me. I feel like I miss that a lot. It happens with like the older Bond films as well. Okay. We mentioned it earlier. I get the same vibe from this movie as well. So that might lead to like a lot of the perplexedness I have. It, yeah, that's possible. Like film language has certainly evolved yeah. you know, over the course of the last fifty years. Yeah. <laughs> you know how old this movie is. Uh, more, more than that, actually. Yeah. See, I, I think this movie like really assumes its audience knows how to play pool too. See, I think yeah. one of the smart moves <laughs> is that it doesn't. Really? It, I, yeah, I, I was like, it, the or, rules that they were playing by, I'm not used to. Right, but it doesn't matter what the rules are. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Like, it, you, like the the way that it is shot and put together, and like the characters' reactions to what's going on in the game, explains to you as much as you need to know about what's going on in the game. Uh, and I think I, that I don't know I, if I agree with that. Like I don't think you need uh, a scene where like somebody where Paul Newman explains to somebody how to shoot straight pool, right? And I, I don't think the movie is improved by that. And I th- I think that removing that aspect of it improves the film. That it moves the focus away from like just the actual fact of what's going on in the game, and it becomes more about how the characters playing the game are re- are positioned in relation to one another. And I, th- I think that that technique is really effective. I, I would have loved like a 
a two-minute, like, okay. here are that? the rules of pool. Okay, do you want <laughs> to, I, I know the rules of straight pool. Do you want me to explain that? I, I, what I got from the movie was that, like, you just want to be, like, the last man standing when you're shooting. It's, it's point. You, you have to call all your shots. Yes. And then you want to make sure you just, like, hit. You just want to be the last person to hit the ball in the hole. You get okay. a point per ball in. It's a point-based game. Uh, okay, I thought it was last man standing. Yeah. Well, it depends. it depends what kind of pool you're playing. Okay. Straight pool is you get, my understanding is, you get a point per ball. Okay. All right? The break is important in that it doesn't function like uh, uh, eight ball, where where you have stripes and solids. Eight ball is always mm-hmm. last. And the eight yeah. ball is always last. Um, yeah. There's, like, very specific rules about what you can do on the break, and, like, there's incentive to not just, like, nail it on the break. You you usually play to a specific point total. I think it's like 100 or 125. There's 15 balls. When you have one ball left, you re-rack with the top ball missing and the last ball that's remaining staying on the table and then just continue playing from there. Um, that's straight one. That's crazy. <laughs> what? That's, yes. That would take forever, yeah. which makes more sense with like the... Right, the marathon why, why they're playing pool for 36 hours straight. Yeah. yeah. That's straight pool. Okay. That that's it, the very rough of what straight pool is. So, the guy it, like apparently before they made this movie, Paul Newman like had never played pool before in his life. Like he was just yeah. not a pool player. That's impressive because he's like very con- like he makes like shots yes. on on film. Yeah, Jackie, like hard is he, shots. Is he actually doing those? A lot of them, not all of them. So they had a stunt shooter come in um, who is um, what's his name? Something Willie. It's a, a very famous. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. A pool player who apparently held the record for most shots made consecutively in a straight pool game, which was like 526, wow. which stood until this year. Somebody broke it. Wow. Yes. So he, he did that in like the 50s, oh. and somebody broke it some 60 plus years later. But but there there are like shots that's clearly Paul Newman <laughs> right. making a shot. Yes. Yeah. So apparently what Paul Newman did is that he, A, he trained with this guy who's like the best consensus best pool player in the world at that time and for many, many years thereafter. He moved a pool table into his house, replacing his dining room table, <laughs> um, and just played pool all the time in his home while he was shooting this movie. Uh, um, and also apparently like snuck into high schools in disguise in order to play pool. To hustle people? No, to like just play. <laughs> and, I guess he wasn't good enough to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, he says that he got to the point of basic competence, that okay. like, he could do the thing. Jackie Gleason, on the other hand, came into the movie basically pretty decent at pool. Oh. And like, didn't have to do any of this stuff. He just shot the shots, and like that was that. Jackie Gleason, probably also an alcoholic IRL. So. <laughs> yes, yeah. And by a lot of life experience yeah. he brought to this film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, a lot of the shots that Newman that look like Newman really were Newman. Not all of them. Like there are some like yeah. trick shots in this movie that he didn't do, but um, some of them were, uh, which is cool because he basically learned to do that over the course of filming here. There were some sequences that, like, they had multiple shots in one take. I don't know if they cut that somehow, but, like... I don't know, but it looks... You have to do it right all at once, right? Yeah, I was looking for, like, what was Newman and what wasn't, and a lot of them looked to me like they were him. Yeah, it was... Yeah, I was looking for the same. And there's plenty of shots where it's just Newman, like, making a shot. Yeah, and that's cool. You know, maybe they're editing his audio, so he's, like says one thing but he actually hits another thing in maybe yeah but that like on the list of like things that like tricks like that's a low level cheat yeah yeah exactly Exactly. that's not that egregious um so yeah like the the authenticity of what's going on here i think is pretty uh sincere oh and like at the beginning when he's doing the like 
mm-hmm. the like padded shot into the pocket, and he makes like two two of them. That's it Paul Newman. Like There's no him. way to what like, like the backwards shot. Yeah, that's a really cool shot. It yeah. is. They yeah. had some really sweet like trick shots in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about that opening sequence because it's a rarity at, at this at this point in American filmmaking that it's a cold open, like a pre-credits cold open. Like you yeah. don't get that very often. Um, and it's a I, for my money, it's a really cool sequence. I think it works I, really well. I thought it was like the best part of the film. Truthfully. Yeah, I, I like the that, That's the like the heist, and you see like the yeah the trick is, happening. This is how the, the the thing works. This is what you do. Yeah, the actual hustling when you do it right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, what I like about it is that. The audience is basically in on it from the beginning, right? Like, you know that the fucking movie's called The Hustler. (laughs) (laughs) Here's Paul Newman, famous movie star. Like, you know they're up to something. So I like that you have that much information, but you still have, like, the fun of discovery because you don't know exactly what the hustle is. You don't know it. Sure. You you see a few points where he might be, like, either he's going to play with Charlie and, like, throw a game and then play a game with the bartender, but then, like, that's not it. And they keep going one more step, one more step until you finally see, like, the big payoff for them. Because you see they're always like one level ahead of you. Right. Because they I, go for a bigger hit than what you think they every, would go yeah, for. Yeah, every, every time there's like one more step than you think there's going to be and then it like comes together and it, I think it works really well and it mm-hmm. does, they don't actually get their score until Charlie leaves and that, that I think that's a cool, cool construction and like a really well-made sequence there. Agree totally. Yeah, yeah. so th- that, that was fun. Yeah, so, I, th- I thought part, that part worked totally for what me. What was the actual yeah. like end of their hustle there. I think I like missed it. So the the scheme is that he like they they're just playing pool. Like he and Charlie yeah. are playing pool and, and he's like totally trashed. Right. And he's yeah. like been ordering drinks this entire time. Yeah. He says keep him coming from the bartender. He is acting drunk, right? Mm-hmm. Like you you don't necessarily know at that time, but he is acting drunk. He ends up hitting they they get to a spot on their board where he hits an unlikely shot. Yeah. Right, which is the eight ball bouncing across. He bets Charlie. Charlie says, you can never make that shot again in a million years. And, yeah. and Newman says, set it up. I'll bet you whatever amount of dollars that I can make it again. And Charlie says, fine. You're drunk. I'll do it. So they set up the shot. Newman puts his money on the table and he whips it. Yeah. And so Charlie says, okay, great. See, I told you he couldn't do it. And he takes his money. And Newman drunkenly challenges, challenges him to do it again. Uh-huh. And he, he, Charlie refuses to take the bet. Because he's drunk, he doesn't want to take advantage of him. And then he starts taking bets from around the room. And so everyone has seen him already <laughs> miss it, seen that okay. he's drunk, and thinks that this is going to be easy money to take from this drunk man. Once he has a huge pot, he's all of a sudden sober and the best pool player in the world. Yeah. Nails it, takes their money, and, and goes home. Okay. Um, so it's it's cool, right? Like, and then he eventually when gets I saw everyone. It, I thought it just cut to them like... Carrying a wallet or something, so I thought he like stole someone's wallet. No, no, so he got a no, big. Like, he got a big. I got my hot. payoff. Yeah. So the yeah. the hustle is that they don't know they got took, right? And that was the mistake that he makes later in the movie that that got his thumbs broken. Is that he says you know put down he puts down as much money as possible right away. He shows off immediately how great a pool player he is. Yeah. And like he he tips his hand too early and that's what gets him beat up and that's the mistake. Because he made it obvious. Because he made it obvious. As opposed to what we see in the beginning where he was subtle enough about it that they walk out of there thinking that okay. they, that he got lucky. Yeah. And like that's the hustle. Is that you okay. don't you don't know you got took when you when you get hustled if they're doing it correctly. Um so yeah, I think that sequence is great. Um, I, I agree. I, yeah, I, I had a, a lot of fun with it. Um, but for my money, my favorite sequence in this movie is the the big 
pool match with like the marathon session. with Minnesota fans. The first yeah. one, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. I would put one. that as my favorite. It was really cool to see them duke it out, and yeah. there were a lot of like really sweet pool sequences where you yeah. can see just how good they are. Yeah, um, and I, I I like how well edited it is, mm-hmm. right? Because you have these. Like, it's a very stationary camera. So this is Robert Rosen that, that directed this movie. And not just in that sequence, but just in general, this is a very unmoving camera. He'll position it in a room, and the characters will move about in that frame. Yeah. And he'll cut relatively often, but he won't pan or, or mm. dolly that often. Often, it's a, if it moves at all, it's a couple of inches just to like get the conversation in frame. And I think we have a lot of that. So you have like a lot of these big framing shots of just like everybody gathered around the pool table, which yeah. was great. You have a lot of really good reaction shots. So you see like Paul Newman lining up his shot, cut to George C. Scott reacting to it, cut to Minnesota Fats reacting to it. And I think it like constructs a narrative within this game that works really well. That you have, you know, the the excitement of the challenge in the first place, you, and uh, them realizing that. That Fast Eddie is the real deal, that he can actually play, the upping the stakes, like Minnesota Fast winning, him falling down, Eddie winning again, him getting too drunk and falling all the way back down again. And this, you don't see that, and this is what I meant earlier when I said that I don't think it's that important that we know the rules of straight No, no, like I got that part. Right, and so it's not important that we understand what the score of the game is or like what the mechanics of them winning and losing is. What's important is that we're seeing the reaction from everybody and that we're Mm -hmm. we're seeing how what's happening, whatever it is that's happening in the game is affecting them and it becomes a, the the core of it isn't the play of the game, the core of it is the emotional reaction to the play of the game. And I think that that really is is more cinematic and easier for the audience. Yeah. And that's something that we can connect to. I get that. I just find that the rules of pool and the type of pool they're playing are just so like ornate that like a little bit of evidence about like what's happening here I think would go a long way. Okay. Because like the opening scene is just like a trick, right? Like they're just doing like a trick shot and anybody can follow that. But what they're, the type of game they're they're playing Mm -hmm. is really specific and obviously Mm -hmm. doesn't translate across decades even. So like, yeah. Yeah. Because nobody plays this type of pool anymore. Yeah, because it, 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 it takes a little longer to play than like yeah. nine ball and, or And not ball. that they had like the foresight to like <clears throat> over history like have this, but at least in the moment I imagine that pool is still like a niche sport as yeah. well. Although American no, it sports was. are very... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they change quickly. <laughs> yeah, like bowling <laughs> is probably very popular at this time. Yeah, and, so uh, apparently this actually inspired a lot of pool halls and I, pool I, players. I could see that. that. Right, so like cause straight pool was not that big a deal when this movie came out. Yeah. Right. But it was after. <laughs> like this this one this movie was nominated for nine Academy Awards, right? It has like a huge big name multiple big name stars yeah. attached to it. Um, so yeah, this did inspire a lot of uh, a lot of pool play after the fact. So I don't think that the nineteen sixty one audience came into this with a very full understanding of how to play pool. Yeah. Yeah. Probably less of an understanding than than we would here. Um, what I did, what I did like about that scene is that the like the rules of this space are kind of like set yeah. up and then immediately violated. Where there's like a sign that's like no gambling. Yes, and it's like Fuck act- that. actually a lot of gambling. <laughs> yeah. and then yeah. Yeah. There's actually, like exclusively gambling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's like no bar, and then they're just like drinking whiskeys. Yes, like, yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So fun fact about that bartender. Yeah. Um, I don't know if uh, I, I didn't recognize him when I watched the movie, I but I looked so. it up later. It was Jake Lamata. 
actual Jake LaMotta. That oh, Raging the, Bull the is raging bull the actual boxer. Wow. <laughs> it is the bartender. Actual functioning alcoholic. Actual functioning alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. He was probably an alcoholic at the time. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's who was in this movie, which is funny. And the, the Willie um, pool player guy is the one that holds the money, the actual guy that trained Paul Newman. Oh. <laughs> was in the movie as yeah, well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. So there's a lot of like fun little angles, I think, in that nice. scene. Um, one, and one thing I liked about that scene well. is how they convey how grueling their match is mm -hmm. and how how long it is uh, without necessarily being just like just literally dragging it out too yeah. long. Like you see the crowds build up and get excited and then you see the, the clock, but then you also see the crowd like disappear and yes. you, then you really see how long they've been going. Yeah, well and you have those couple of moments where like that one guy opens the blinds and they're like, get that fucking sun out of here yeah, and he yeah. closes the blinds again. And what, what I like about that point is like the contrast between Fats and, and Fast Eddie, right? Because Minnesota Fats basically looks the same at the beginning yeah. and at the end, right? He's very purposeful and composed and in control and he's just moving about the table the same way throughout the entire process and you see Newman just decline yep. throughout the entire scene until he's literally like unable to stand. He's very rude and Yeah, he's yeah. a he's a dick about it and like he's, <laughs> he's sweating and like slurring his speech and like the contrast between the two of them. I, I, I think Newman draws that out really, really well. Um, I don't here. know how Fats stayed awake that long. Oh yeah, no shit. I can <laughs> for thirty six hours while you're yeah. drinking bourbon the entire time. Yeah, yeah like, I, I don't think, think your so. your fingers would be all worn out from Yes, you know, I don't know pool if sticks. people actually played pool like yeah. that. Like, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't know if that's something Drama the human body can, can actually handle. But um, they did here, so <laughs> who the hell knows. Um, what do we think of Newman in general and his performance? He was nominated for a Best Oscar, or Best Acting Oscar for this one. Um, and it kind of, he, he was well known before this, but it elevated his, his star status. How do we feel about his performance here? Yeah, he's great. I mean, <coughs> he's like really charming and charismatic, but he also shows like, you know, kind of his dark side mm -hmm. a lot and his vulnerability. Um, and so I appreciate that depth in his performance, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I think that he, like there's a lot to this character. I think that, that Fast Eddie Paulson is like a, one of the richer characters that we've seen in, in American cinema, period. Like we see a, a pretty strong arc from this guy. We see a lot of angles of him. We see like him doing that Paul Newman charm, which he can just turn on like that when he is starting to hustle people. But also, I think Newman spends a lot of his career fighting against or playing against how good looking he is. <laughs> right? like, yeah, I, I would contrast this again to like Ocean's Eleven, where right. like, you know, the characters in that movie are like, they're all supposed to be cool and we never see them be right. bad and like. Right, like like Paul Newman or not Paul, Newman, uh, Brad Pitt and George Clooney in that movie are playing into. Oh, uh, I was thinking the old one, like same because oh, oh, okay. the old one's like the same, the same era, same era, mm -hmm. like a few years later. But, right, uh, right. Uh, but, but like Sinatra, like never for a moment is he like a bad guy. Right, exactly. Yeah, or, at as, least from their point of view. Yeah, at least from yeah. their like culturally now he's awful, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, in that movie, there's like there's no question whether or not he's the good guy. In right. The film. Yeah. yeah. Who I was reminded of. Yeah. Uh, the, the modern actor I was reminded of is um, Charlize Theron, like mm -hmm. <laughs> for for Paul Newman's yeah. cop here, right? In terms of uh, actors who have fought against how good looking they are, mm -hmm. in like a physical and uh, like moral way, in many many roles, have had these characters that have this really complex and strong arc 
that run throughout the movie. I, I feel like that that she is kind of tracking with Paul Newman in a lot of his roles because he he's done this in multiple movies, right? Like you, we've seen The Sting and like his intro as Henry Gondorf is him like face first in a toilet, nearly, right? Like that's that's how he opens the movie. You look at Cool Hand Luke, like we have. You guys haven't seen that movie, but trust me, like he has, he is an alcoholic degenerate in that movie as well. Like same thing okay, in Hot. I didn't know that. Right, like he he keeps returning to these roles with these really flawed and fundamentally distressed characters, and it would be very easy for him to be like a Cary Grant. I think mm -hmm. it would have been easy for him to follow like a Tony Curtis type of or, or Jack Lemmon even type of role here because he is so so handsome and yeah. so charming that he could have just le leaned on that for his entire career and he didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really cool choice for him. I think It's that, a much more interesting character. Right. And it's a more, it's a more interesting movie. And that's not a like, Cary Grant is one of the one of the greats too, right? Like mm -hmm. and so is Tony Curtis and like these guys are are famous for a reason, but it's it's nice that we have the guy who, you know, looks like them, looks like this Greek statue but can also make cat on a hot tin roof, which is a movie that a Cary Grant would never have touched something like that. They also don't crush that salad dressing game like Paul Newman That's does. true. Well, not just salad dressing. It's <laughs> yeah. salad dressing and pasta sauce and pizza. There's, yes. There's, pizza. A own, there's Newman's own pizza. Did not know that. As well. And they're all, like, of the products I've had, pretty good. I like the salad dressing. It's pretty good. All the It's my go-to. All the proceeds go to... Charity. Some kind of charity. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the other great... Um, uh, Paul Newman accomplishment is that he this is the accomplishment he cited as being the one he's most proud of he ended up on Nixon's enemies list oh yeah lifelong Democrat what did he do I think he's just a lifelong Democrat and not, okay. not quite about that and he showed up on Nixon's enemies list and nice. he was a like actually legitimate race car driver yes too yes he was yeah yeah like, I, I, and his cars are sought after I feel like I mentioned the story about his watch when we did yeah but stand. tell it again uh, well, I mean, he wore um, a Rolex Daytona, uh, and these days is basically known as the Paul Newman Daytona, or at least there's a specific model that's the Paul Newman Daytona. Mm -hmm. um, the original one that was his uh, sold at auction for some great number of millions. I think it might be like one of, if not the most expensive watches sold. Um, he just like gave it to his son-in-law at right, some point, yeah. and then his son-in-law sold it. The proceeds went to the Paul Newman Foundation for charity. So, and his cars fetch like oh yeah, like tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, too. Yeah, it's yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Um, so that yeah, that's he really is one of the good ones. Like I, a, I think very larger than life figure too. Right. But it's funny because you describe basically all of his acting roles as these like very multi-dimensional roles, but I still only think of him as that very charismatic character. I don't right. think he, of like, he, like that. Because he just so embodies it. Yeah. Right? Like the, some people just have that have it, right? Have that charisma, and he does. Yeah. And he's, I mean, based on these stories, he's just like that in real life too, yes. right? That's it's just his real life like. character. Yeah. So, I think, like, the more confounding part of the film is his, like, relationship with Sarah yeah. and, like, kind of the decisions that Sarah makes. Like, it's it's obvious up front that they have, like, have, like, a doomed relationship, mm -hmm. but the places that it goes are unexpected and feel unnecessary. Yeah. Okay, so I... I like, unnecessarily punishing to Sarah in particular. Yeah. I think we need to iron out some of the plotting at the during the Louisville sequence, because sure. I think that clarifies a little bit of what was going on there. Okay, so okay. the... My understanding of what happened is that he, he, he gets this 
break, brokers this deal with the Gordon character, with the George C. Scott character. Twenty-five seventy-five split. Um, George C. Scott gets the seventy-five. He gets the twenty-five. They're going to go to Louisville. They're going to play this Findlay guy. Yeah. And he's like, he just likes playing hustlers. Like yeah. that's that's what he does. He tells Sarah this. She's distraught. Thinks that he's going to she's going to abandon him. That and, he's like a rambling man. Because yeah, because gonna... he's like this roamer. Like she has a history of men abandoning her. It has driven her to alcoholism. Um, and really a borderline poverty lifestyle. I don't remember that bit, actually. Yeah, she, has... she, she explains that, like, her father <clears throat> just walked out one day, and, okay. like, her father still, like, sends a check, but otherwise they, like, don't have a relationship. Right, and, and there was there are other romantic relationships that she's had. Mm-hmm. Right before this, she has said that she loves him, he does not reciprocate, um, and just kind of, you know, charms it away. And eventually it turns out that she will go with him, right? Like, that she is distraught enough, she'll, she'll, she's going to go with him. They're on the train together, all the all three of them, on the way to Louisville. George C. Scott has constant digs at this at the Sarah character, right? Like we're forgetting that she is crippled. She has a she has a limp for because of polio, like she yeah she had polio. She, yeah. she said she was in a car accident. She lied about the, that. Yeah, but she's like covering. She has polio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. George C. Scott has a dig about this, right? They um, take the. They go to the actual Kentucky Derby. They encounter the Findlay character. They're at like a party at his place. They get invited to a party at his yeah. place. She gets too drunk, right? And is. It has been made clear that she is worried about Newman leaving her mm-hmm. at this point, right? George C. Scott says to her at this party while she's drunk something that we can't hear, right? There's mm-hmm. some that he whispers something into her yeah, ear. It seems like he makes a pass at her, though. It's, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think it's left intentionally ambiguous. It could yeah. be that she makes a pass at her. It could be that he makes up some lie about Paul Newman not wanting her to be around anymore. It could be any number of things, right? Mm-hmm. They, somebody asked George C. Scott about what he said, and he said, oh, I didn't say anything in particular. Whatever you can imagine is worse than any real thing I could come up with here, right? So it's some terrible thing that he said to her. She goes upstairs and basically passes out, okay? That's when the game starts. Right, that's when Paul Newman and George C. Scott go downstairs, start playing the, the mayor of the town of Jaws at, the, <laughs> <laughs> at billiards, and Paul Newman starts losing. He goes upstairs, sees her borderline unconscious, actually unconscious, takes the money from her that he has given her already earlier, his only winnings, all the money that he has in the world, removes it from her, she notices him leaving, and she leaves on her own to go back home after that. Mm-hmm. And I think that she, combined with him taking the money, the constant digs from the George C. Scott character, whatever terrible thing she said to him, and Newman essentially ignoring her for the, the pool game, she gets home, George C. Scott comes home alone, Paul Newman's not with him. At that point, she breaks, mm-hmm. right? She sleeps with the George C. Scott character after he makes an aggressive pass at her and wakes up and kills herself. And to me, that's that paints a pretty rich supporting character in this movie, and I think that that adds up for Piper Laurie to be in a, in a pretty, a very strong performance, and it adds a lot to the movie. I think I think the movie gets to her suicide in a believable way. I think that it gets to Newman's reaction to that in a believable way, um, and and for me, that sequence really was powerful and still does work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that some of those beats do come pretty fast. Um, mm-hmm. They do come really lightly, right? Like, it, it's easy to blink and miss him, like, having all these little digs about, like, uh, what a cripple can and can't do when they're on the train and things like that. Um, but 
taken all together, I think that Piper Laurie does really good work here, um, and that and that it works. For yeah, me as well. I, I think my problem was that I didn't get the impression like it was building <clears throat> up to something, and so yeah. I kind of forgot like what was spoken. And then by the time you know shit actually hits the fan, I'm right. like, oh my god, why is this happening? But I can't mm -hmm. remember the the previous lines to connect to that plot point, and then. I'm left confused. Right. I mean, and I, I come at this with the benefit of having seen this movie five times now. So, yeah. like, I, I know the tone of it. I know where where the beats are coming. Um, so, like, I can kind of anticipate those things. Um, so, it's not surprising that you're not going to hit every single thing, every, the, the first viewing. I, I was on board with it until George C. Scott's, like, character goes back to the hotel and they, like, get, they took up and she kills herself. That right. just seemed like a huge acceleration of, like, what was happening. Okay. That didn't feel believable to me. Okay, I, I was just I, like, whoa, that was like a huge change of what was happening. Okay. I, I would get if she like left or like, uh -huh. you know, was leaving Paul Newman's character. Like that I could see coming. Yeah. 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 I could see reading that as like a fridging moment, right? Like, because there's this trouble about like fridging women and like you mm -hmm. enable the male character's advancement or character development by killing the, the female character. And I think there's some of that here. Um, I think it gets away from that, or at least like salvages that problem, uh, because I do think there's a richness to what Piper Laurie is doing here. I think that mm -hmm. we have, we've spent a lot of time with Sarah at this point. I think that we've seen a lot of what this character, who she is, why she is who she is, like, and how really just fundamentally distressed and broken she is. Like, she's an alcoholic, right? She is clearly depressed. She's just a depressed person. Um, the most that she can manage to do throughout her day is to go to classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, it, these are, th this pattern of behavior as well as the pattern of treatment that she receives from, from George C. Scott and Paul Newman over the course of that weekend, if she is drunk having just done a terrible thing and believes that the person that she loves has essentially abandoned her or kind of hates her now, I kind of get it. Like, I get how mm -hmm. the movie gets there. It's a big move, um, but I, I think that it, if, it largely earns it, uh, but that's just me. And like other people, what was Paul disagree. Newman's uh, explanation for wanting to walk home? He I, just he didn't want to be with the George C. Scott character. Yeah. Okay. Like he's so disgusted by the character. Yeah, and himself as, as like a leech, and yeah, yeah. I I think that like that he that he's stolen the money from Sarah. Yeah, he yeah. takes the money from Sarah. He has to beg to play more um, from George C. Scott. Like he he's just been so. Even though he won the game, like yeah. he is just so debased himself mm -hmm. um, that yeah, he's like giving up too much, right? Yeah. And that mm -hmm. he, he yeah he can't tolerate being around okay. Gordon anymore, um, which I think gets to the other, or really not the other, but like the main theme in this movie um, is the nature of uh, character versus talent, and yeah. and uh, character versus failure, um, and the relationship between those things. And I think that that is what Gordon is preying on, and what Newman eventually learns in that last sequence with, with Minnesota Fats, uh, in that it's it's about discovering yourself in the context of your failures and in the context of your successes that will actually lead to to actualization and to a, a fuller humanity, um, and not simply about being the most talented person. Right, and I think that that I think the movie communicates that in a really nuanced and and, and clear way. Yeah, yeah. did that land? Yeah, I, I, I thought the ending was good. They kind of like, it felt like, relative to the rest of the movie, it felt like they skipped through the ending a little bit. Or <laughs> just like, and he wins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas like before, it was like the 40 minute 
up and down sequence. Was like, right. You'd think they do it in reverse, right? You'd have the first one where he gets where he gets wrecked and have that be kind of short, and then have yeah. the climactic. It is important scene though that he's like longer. up in the first one, and then like ruins it. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I, it's funny you mentioned that. But you're right. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I read the the Ebert review of this movie. Um, in preparation for this episode, and he, it, this was one of those retrospective reviews that he does where he was writing it in like 2001 or something. Yeah. Um, and he said that his memory of the movie was that, that the longer pool game was at the end, mm -hmm. and that the shorter one is the one where he loses, um, right. which isn't what happens. And I, I think it's a good choice, right? Because mm -hmm. I think by the time we get to that moment, you know. Newman is going to win the second he walks into that bar, uh -huh. right? Just like the way he's carrying himself, how he looks, the, the 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 confidence, but also the wisdom. I think that this character has gained over the course of the film is evident as soon as he walks in. You don't need a long sequence, right? And I think that that that's why Fats throws in the towel. It's like because he saw exactly what we see. He saw that this guy has has found the the character, right? Mm -hmm. Like he has found who he is, and that's why he's winning. Not because he's learned how to play pool better. Mm. Right? Like he's not a more talented player at this point. He's a he's a more complete person. Sure. Um, and I think that's what the, the film is getting at here. Yeah. Yeah. But how did he get to that point? Did he really learn? That's what I'm a little confused about. Because like I think the scene right before that is the yep. the Kentucky Derby scene, right? Yeah, you said is. that's where he's debased himself the most. That's where he's kind of at his lowest point. His girlfriend has just killed herself, like... Yeah, the, the scene right before that is him discovering her body. Yeah. Right, and I think what we... What happens over the course of that entire sequence, like from the beginning of that party to her death, is everything... He, he sees everything he has to give up to, to buy into Gordon's plan, mm -hmm. right? So he has, he has given up a lot of money, for one thing, 75% relative to 25%. He's given up his time. He has given up his sense of personhood. Right, and his sense of, and not just his sense, but his freedom, right? That he, he is now, it's now up to Gordon whether or not he plays pool at any given time. Uh, he is, and most of all, he's given up the only person that he has any kind of authentic connection with anymore. Mm -hmm. And having seen all that, the, we see his decision and the results of his decision in the, in the next sequence. I don't think, we, I don't think the ne movie needs to show us any more than that. We we see we we've seen the cost. We've seen Newman see the cost, and the decision is him walking into that pool hall and saying and demonstrating to Gordon that he has learned that he's rejecting his philosophy and that frankly he just doesn't need pool anymore. Mm -hmm. And then he walks out, and that and that's the end of the movie. Um, so I I think it works fine. But he um, still has to beat Minnesota Fats one more time. Right. He has to he has to demonstrate like because if if pool is about character, which is what the 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 argument that George C. Scott makes early on. And that for, for George C. Scott, for, for Gordon, character means putting aside everything of yourself and investing in exactly what George C. Scott says you're supposed to invest in, which is the money, which is the, the, the numbers, which is the odds, and, doing, and, and subsuming your talent and your person to his authority. Right? What Newman discovers character is, is rejecting that. Right, and, and identifying that there is something bigger than just exhi exhibiting your talent and something bigger than debasing your talent for another. And I, I think that that is where he gets to at the end of this movie. Right? And I think that we see that in his play and in his but I feel in that like final sequence. In 
playing and defeating Minnesota Fats, he's still trying to exhibit his talent as a pool player, right? It's not him giving up pool, at least not until the very, very end. Mm-hmm. He's still he's still playing it. But he's choosing to play it, right? And he's playing it on, on his terms, right? The fact that he's not giving any money over to George C. Scott, I think, is really critical there. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's brokering another deal. He's saying, like, no, you're not a part of this. This is this is who I am now. Mm-hmm. I think that works. Re- I, I, for me, it works really well. Yeah. And, and I like this movie a lot. Cool. Um, this movie, are, are we at time? Basically. Okay, great. I could talk about this movie forever, but I, yeah. I, I do, do you have a closing thought? Or? Um, this movie got a sequel. Um, this really? Thing. Yes. Wait, what? <laughs> that doesn't feel necessary Yes, at all. it got a sequel uh, 30 years later. Hustlers? No. <laughs> Not that one. It's called The Color of Money. Um, it, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a sequel to this movie. Um, huh. it, Newman reprises his role. Um, it, he finally won his Oscar his first and only one for Color of Money, directed by Martin Scorsese. Um, he plays Eddie, uh, Fast Eddie Folson as a mentor to a Tom Cruise character. And wow. it's good. It's a very good so movie. So he's passing over the Paul Newman reins to Tom Cruise. Yes, then, that is kind effect. of how it feels. And in the narrative of the film, he's passing the pool reins of uh, Eddie Felson to the, the Tom Cruise he's character. Not, not playing pool anymore, presumably. Well, he is. <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, watch the movie. It's, it really it is good. Um, it, it holds up. Um, and I feel like I've definitely heard the name. You know? Yeah. 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 I'm definitely aware of the name. Yeah. So oh, yeah. John Turturro's in it. So, yeah. There's a lot of good people in it. It's a, yeah. it's a good movie. Um, and yeah, Martin Scorsese directed it. So, cool. Yeah. He finally. I, I, the the sense is that the, the Academy recognized that he should have gotten the best Oscar, best acting Oscar for. The Hustler and yeah, retroactively it's one of those. Yeah, <laughs> awarded it for the same character um, in, in Color of Money. Oh, Iggy Pops in it too. Yeah, it's a great cast. <laughs> and Charles Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Must be Martin's brother. Yeah, got Charlie in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. I think that my expectations for this movie were very misaligned with <laughs> what it was, and yes. as such, it's surprising. I did not enjoy it as much. Um, yeah, I just I, remember getting to that middle part and just being like, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> this is what this is. Yeah, this goes dark places. Yes, yeah. it does. Um, I love this movie. I think it's one of the best American movies ever made. Um, I think that Eddie Falson is one of the best American characters ever made. Um, and, yeah, there's a, there's a richness to this film. Go watch it a lot. Like It's, it's, it's really good. It holds up every time for me. Yeah. Um, in any event, we'll be back in a moment with, uh, with things we've seen. We'll see you then. We're back with things we've seen. Uh, this is a section where we talk about uh, movies that we've seen recently, usually more contemporary films. Uh, Wilson, what did you see recently? The Lighthouse. Oh, I've been meaning to see this. Yeah, it's, me too. I've heard a lot of good things. Yeah. It's a ride, that's yeah. for sure. Um, so this is uh, from Robert Eggers, who's the same guy that did um, The Witch. Yeah. Um, this is his follow-up to The Witch some four years later, many years later. There are two people in this movie. Um, it's Willem Dafoe and uh, Robert Pattinson. Uh, the premise is that Willem Dafoe, uh, Dafoe is the head of this lighthouse in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean uh, at an ambiguous period in time. Uh, Robert Pattinson shows up to be his assistant. That's how he, that he's be, the movie opens with him being rowed to, to this lighthouse. Um, what unfolds from there is a weird relationship that develops between these two men. You have Willem Dafoe playing the uh, verbose, domineering, you know, 
you know, taskmaster type figure, the, the boss, so to speak. Uh, and Robert Pattinson is the quieter, more reserved, put-upon laborer. Right? Early in the film, uh, Robert develops a feud with a seagull. Um, they, they, he's, he's trying to uh, move some coal or something into a shed. A seagull is standing in his way and will not move, and he ends up like fighting with it um, until he can, you know, get it out of the way and and, and load up his coal. He tells uh, Willem Dafoe about this, and Willem Dafoe says that you can never harm a seabird because the, the the they are inhabited by the souls of dead seamen, and they will come back and haunt you, and terrible things will happen if you kill the seabird. Um, so the seagull keeps fucking with, with Robert Pattinson, and eventually, <laughs> lo and behold, yes, he does kill the seagull. He grabs it by the neck and very graphically beats it to death against a rock. Um, I'm really not sure how they filmed that, because it's very explicit about what's going on there. Um, uh, from there, a giant storm shows up and just starts battering this island, uh, such that the relief that is supposed to come for the two of them after, like, two months on this rock doesn't show up. Um, and the storm just continues and continues. Eventually, how much time has passed becomes very unclear, They're, and the characters themselves remark on it. They're not sure if they've been there for a week, if they've been there for a year, if they've been there for a month. Like, it's totally ambiguous. Um, and peculiar supernatural visions or actual events start to happen to the two of them. Um, eventually... Robert Pattinson confesses to Willem Dafoe about some bad act that he committed while he was back on land, which is why he showed up to the lighthouse, um, and it continues from there. It's a difficult movie to pin down narratively. <laughs> like it's it. It continues from there. Yes, it does. Which the witch was as well. Yes, and it this is clearly made by the same guy that made the witch. It has that same kind of dense language that is very much of the era. In this case, it would be like you know, 1820s whalers or whatever. Um, and we get to see Willem Dafoe and uh, Robert Pattinson have a lot of fun with that. Um, it works as allegory in a way similar to The Witch. This is a much, much more clearly an allegory about class relations and like a failed uh, lower class rebellion, um, so to speak, which is interesting and like how what we strive for may eventually destroy us, um, which is where this movie ends up and as far as I can tell. Um, I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> it, was a, it was really good. Not an easy watch. Uh, I'm not sure it's one that I would run back to quickly again because it's, you know, kind of takes a lot out of you. Um, but if you liked The Witch, you'd probably like this one. If you didn't like The Witch, you might like this one. Um, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really a hell of a movie and worth watching for the novelty of it alone. Um, but I feel like there's a lot to unpack here and a lot of very striking imagery that is not going to leave any of the viewers anytime soon so i heard it's something to see in theaters yes it is and it for a lot of reasons it, i mean it is a good looking movie it's shot in black and white it has a really tight aspect ratio it's almost a box on the screen which it huh. does suggest like the claustrophobia of this film like they're trapped in this lighthouse for the most for essentially they're trapped on this island yeah. right like they're trapped with each other um and that works really well and i think it works better in theaters because you really see like the it, it looks like the the screen is closing in on them um, for for by the halfway point in the movie. Um, it was really good. Um, I liked it a lot. It, it should still be playing, and if if it is, go go check it out. I, I thought it was good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. What, what do you say, One of the funnier things about oh, Robert sorry. Pattinson is Trump's like tweets about him. 
Trump tweets about Wait, what? Robert Pattinson. Yeah, so when he was like, because he had a relationship with his Twilight co-star, Kristen Stewart. Right. And I forget if they were married or if they just had like a... a I don't think they were long, married. Um, when he got dumped, like, Trump was just like tweeting through it, being like... <laughs> was like, this like pre-presidency? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like probably like 10 years ago now. And they're really funny tweets to read. Like Trump, Trump has like very strong opinions on the like Robert Pattinson, Chris oh Stewart relationship and like that he's like better than her and like he doesn't need to like, <laughs> what? That, like he, he's team Pattinson. He got like a, he oh got dumped God. in a way that was like unfair and like, yeah. That's bizarre. It's really funny and very bizarre. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's, speaking of those two, like. Like the surreal nature of this time period is actually summed up very well in these <laughs> yeah. tweets. Jesus. It's yeah. so cool that the two leads of the Twilight series, like this kind of campy, at best, you know... YA novel right. series. Like, they've both gone on to great, like, artistically challenging, like, nuanced careers, great performances with multiple big-name directors, like, big-name, like, art house directors, um, and are really major, major draws of the art house crowd now. Like, I think that's really cool. Like, I go to movies because Kristen Stewart's in them, or that mm-hmm. Robert Pattinson's in them, and that's great. That's not what you would expect. He's going to be Batman, Batman too. He's going to be the Batman. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. um, what's his name? A lot of people were mad about that, because yes. they haven't seen his art house career. Right, yeah. Like he's, if, and he's so well suited to that. Like, he's, he would be a very good Batman. A moody weirdo that dresses up in a, in a costume. Yeah, like that. That sounds like Robert Pattinson to me. Yeah. yeah. Daniel Radcliffe's sort of done this too, right? Yes. Yeah. It more, I think he's worked less. Yeah. Right? Like, but. Uh, Once Rad- you can, like, hit that paycheck, it allows you to do, like, the things that you really want to he, do. He's on record making that point. He said, yeah. like, yeah, I, I did it. I made these Harry Potter movies. I have more money than God. I'm going to, I'm set for life. I can yeah. make any movie I want, and I'm only going to make or, the stuff uh, I want. The dude from Lord of the Rings, the same way. Too. Elijah Wood? Yeah, Elijah Wood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's only in, like, weird stuff now. Yeah. And, that's all he needs to do. Yeah. Right? Like, of course, we have uh, Daniel Radcliffe making Swiss Army Man, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> he gets to pick his projects. Yeah, or his, like, serial killer in Sin City. It yes. It's, like, a great role. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, yeah he, he can make whatever he wants. Yeah. 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 Um, so, good for them. Yeah. Uh, what did you see, Grossman? Um I saw a documentary. It was at Film Forum, and it's still playing there. It's called American Dharma. Uh, this is directed by Errol Morris, who's oh. the one of the greatest living documentarians right now. Um, probably up there with, it's like him and Werner Herzog, probably. Um, and he was there to talk really? about the film. Yeah, okay. which was cool, but sweet. I'll get into that. Um, the film is uh, a very challenging documentary. It's a portrait of Steve Bannon mm. and was supposed to come out last year, but there was uh, some sort of issue with the distribution that I didn't research, but it, it sounded like it was political. Um, and the movie didn't come out last year, and it's just coming out now. And r- really, the film just kind of gets into like Bannon, his time uh, as he took over Breitbart after the death of Andrew Breitbart, or how he got involved in Breitbart and then took it over after Breitbart's death, and then his move into the Trump campaign and their success, and then his mm-hmm. like eventual firing right. from the Trump White House. And really stark documentary um, that gets into his um, obsession with different films 
particularly a film called um, 12 O'Clock High, I think it's called, um, which is a World War II movie about a bomber field where essentially all these young men were just like piling onto bombers and just like running suicide missions over Nazi Germany. And the mm. thrust of the film is that like the mission is what's important mm -hmm. and it doesn't really matter the like point or morality of the mission. It's just you just want to be successful on the mission. Okay. Um, it's like a Bridge Over River Kwai situation. Right. And it's okay. about the like, and they, they get into Bridge Over River Kwai as well. Okay. But most of the film is about this, uh, this other film um, about the bombers. And it's apparently Steve Bannon's favorite film and Errol Morris watched it and he said it was like the most nihilistic film he's ever seen. He says he was like very moved by it, but he was also disturbed by the film. Hmm. And um, I mean, we know that Steve Bannon's a psycho and the film does a good job of illustrating that and that his ideology doesn't make any sense other than the fact that he's like very clearly a fascist and was very influential in the Trump camp and was very instrumental in their success mm -hmm. as, as a campaign. And um, yeah, so it's a very challenging film and very interesting and in line with a lot of the films that Errol Morris has made. Um, because he, he made a film about uh, Donald Rumsfeld, he made another film about Robert McNamara, so he's like very good at getting total psychos to talk on film <laughs> about their careers, and I think treats them fairly, and... That's all you need to do yeah, if you want to make them look like psychos. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's very interesting from that angle. Uh -huh. um, and then Errol Morris is there, which, right. which is amazing, because he's like, Again, like, How old well, is he? He's he's older guy. Um, I, like I, I don't want to speculate, but he okay. looks like he's in his seventies at least. Okay, okay. Um, he's an older guy, and um, but one of like brilliant filmmakers. So like, you want to like mm -hmm. hear him talk. Of course. And then this is uh, so we're at film forum, and so it's a bunch of like us and like West older West nerds. Village, yeah, older like West Village film people. Yes. And like probably Upper East Side or Upper River West Side film people, meaning very old. Um, <laughs> and the Lincoln Plaza crowd. It was like supposed to be like some guy like interview Earl Morris. Right. And what it turned into was people in the crowd yelling their opinion about the <laughs> film at Earl Morris. What? And totally ruined the talk where like oh Morris gosh. couldn't. God. And. I think he handled it well because he's like being very respectful to people in the crowd. Some of whom thought that um, that the the portrait of Steve Bannon wasn't like damning enough or clear that he was like a bad person, even though it's like crystal clear. They show the very clear results of his ideology and its effect that it's had on people, mm -hmm. um, being that they um, the Charlotte. Uh, rally with oh, all the white film. nationalists, the and then uh, Heather Hare um, yep. was kind of martyred there. They show a very briefly the clip of like the car like driving it's into the crowd, very, which hard, to is watch. very hard to watch mm -hmm. and very upsetting. And it's very clear in the film that this is the direct result of Steve Bannon's success 
in getting which is Trump. True. So, which is like how media literacy works, where you, like you put these <laughs> things, things together. together. Like, oh, um, cause effect. People, some people in the crowd didn't agree. <laughs> um, some people in the crowd thought Errol Morris had done a good job and were yelling their support <laughs> at Errol Great Morris. Great job, dude. Which, um, good game, good effort. <laughs> was very frustrating because. It was like we have this moment, which is like fleeting, where you yes. have this like, like a someone who has a like towering career in film, who, you know, to, to get a very small crowd to yeah. be able to speak with him, and did not really get a word in, and it was very upsetting to be in that audience. It's like let's just let him talk about this because I don't care about What's random West Village Asshole. film forum. Person like member like, wow. You and it, that was like very frustrating. That's surprising because you the yeah. film forum has a reputation as being like a, a venue for the serious film goer, and yeah. you'd think they would have respect for the creator. Yeah, and they yeah. apparently don't. I've I've been to a number of events like this in New York, and for whatever reason, this like cohort Bizarre. manages to ruin it almost every time where events. Talks, political talks huh. in New York, and for whatever reason, sometimes attract like really crazy people. And I've, I've been to some events that have handled things like this well. Like I've uh -huh. been to a few talks at the New York Public Library, and what they did well there was they handed out sheets of paper to everybody in the crowd, and they're like, if you want to ask a question, you can put the question on the paper, That's and then we'll reasonable. collect it, and if we think it's an interesting question, then we'll ask it. Yep. And that was a talk with uh, Stacey Abrams, and the questions were good because someone like filtered them yes, all. And yeah. here it was just like random, jerks. random people yelling it out. And I will say that it did seem to be an age connection to this where it seemed fine for old people just to kind of like yell out the thing on their mind. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> old man yells a clown. Yeah, yeah, it really, really was that. And that was very frustrating and disappointing. My opinion on this kind of stuff for a very long time has all has been that we just shouldn't have Q&A sessions. At, at this wasn't a Q&A session. <laughs> this was, there was an interviewer uh -huh. who was there to ask questions to Errol Morris. Oh, they didn't even get through his, that interviewer guy's questions? No. Oh, none no. of them. Okay. And it was never stated that this was like yeah, a, a Q&A. This was, oh, this guy was going to interview Errol Morris and talk about this film. That's much worse. And it became a, not a Q&A, but a yell at Errol Morris <laughs> session. Wow. To the point where it's some other guy who was like the director of events at Film Forum like stepped in and was like, Stop that. All right, we can all continue this discussion. Not okay. here, though. Yes. And <laughs> we've, we okay. don't have much time, so. This is quite an event. Yeah. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Yeah. But it was Jesus. like, it's on par with like, uh, I don't want to say like Martin Scorsese because he's like, the, in a moment of controversy right now. But it would be like if you had Scorsese in the room and someone was going to interview Scorsese and he like wasn't able to get a word in. Where it's like, yeah, they're terrible. so fleeting. Yeah, of, if there's of, anyone we should of, listen to about movies. Yes, ex exactly. Scorsese. And Errol, Errol Morris is one of those people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or like Werner Hartzog would be another like corollary. It would be like, yep. yeah, totally ruined. And yeah. that was a very frustrating experience. Um, it's a great film though. A very intense watch. Very in line with his other films, and um, I, I think because there's been a delay since it's uh, the distribution point at which they were supposed to have, which is a year ago, and now, 
I think it's more effective actually that mm -hmm. there's like a little bit bit of distance between when it was supposed to come out and when it actually did right. come out. And I think the what we're seeing C Bandit's influence is definitely still like there. And I think it's important to like have a little bit of distance. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very in, important. What's it called again? Uh, American Dharma. Okay. Um, and they define sort of Dharma as like your. Well, Bannon defines it as being like your your destiny, okay. like a, like a moralized like uh -huh. destiny. Of course, he does. Where it's like your intent or the purpose of your life. Okay. Yeah. Class warfare. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, all right, Charles. What did you see? I saw uh, something very different. I saw Zombieland colon double oh, tap. How was it? Uh, it was bad, oh, and it was yeah. worse than I expected. <laughs> Uh, I, I regret yeah, having I, seen this movie. I had a coworker who like announced in our movies channel like better than the first. Okay. No. Like very, <laughs> very confidently they were like absolutely better. not. Were, so no. I went into it like the reviews are, don't bear that out. But yeah. I'd seen some reviews. I'd heard some hearsay that this movie is not great, but it's a fun time, especially if you like the first one. So I'm like, all right, fine. That sounds good. I did. Like I enjoyed the first, the first one. one. Yeah. Uh, it was a fresh take first on the zombie great. genre. Yeah. It had some. Yeah, it was really fun. And I go into this and like, I don't know, it's it's like the plot is just like similar to the first but worse. Um, where like they've kind of settled into life where they've taken over the White House and have found like a safe haven there. But then uh, the women decide that they don't want to be cooped up and so they leave. Okay. And then um, they realize that the little girl has like run off and they're concerned about her safety. I mean, Ab Abigail Breslin's character, she's not a little girl anymore. Right. Um, and so they basically go across the country to find her, uh -huh. and that's kind of the main plot of the whole movie. Um, but it's the the formula is not as fresh as the first time around because it's kind of doing a similar thing. Um, and a lot of the jokes and characters that are added to this movie feel outdated, and they probably would have even felt outdated <laughs> if they were in the first movie. So I'm just really perplexed by it, right? Like. They add a like ditzy blonde girl character who essentially is just exactly what you'd expect. She's like portrayed as really dumb and annoying, um, you know the, the typical like kind of valley girl character, sure. right? And again, even back in the first Zombieland, that would have felt kind of outdated. Uh, and um, there's like a hippie dude um, that Abigail Breslin meets and mm -hmm. like falls for and uh, so they're chasing after them right and so like that kind of feels like a really outdated caricature um, there's some like kind of very conservative feeling humor around the contrast between them and the like pacifist hippie people and they make a few like references to gun control which doesn't make sense if your world is a zombie apocalypse. Like, it's not even a fitting metaphor for that. Mm. So they're, like, making fun of these hippies for not wanting guns, but it's, like, sure, but it, it has nothing to do with, Anything. like, our world. Yeah. So, like, I don't know why you're smugly making that joke here. Like, that's kind of messed up. Um, so, yeah, they introduced some new types of zombies, but they barely matter. Um, they end up killing them kind of just like... The other, the other zombie. Uh, so they imply that there's going to be like a tough fight, but they end up kind of rounding them up and like tricking them to jumping off the tall building, essentially. Okay. So it's like it wasn't really that much of a threat anyway. Um, it's weird to me that this movie got a sequel now. It is. Like, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you think this whole genre is all tapped out. Yeah, I, definitely that. That's been true for years. <laughs> um, it's been true for years. They, yeah. Yet they made this. But yet they made this. And that's kind of the reason the first movie was funny. Yeah. Right? Because they were like, 
hey, this whole thing this is goofy, ridiculous. Right, and it works yeah. there. And yeah. like that movie has like this like cute critique of capitalism in it um, that that works well. Um, and if that felt complete. Honestly, like the first zombie yeah. plan feels like a finished idea to me. Yeah, exactly. There was no reason for this to be made. Uh, the the actual zombie action that's in it wasn't really that compelling. Yeah. Uh, the best part of it was still like the whole zombie rules gimmick. Sure. So every time something relevant to one of the rules happens, they have like some floating text on screen. It's okay. just like in the first one. I thought that was really cute, and I really liked that part of it. Yeah, it's a good um, game. Yeah, um, but rest of it just no. Yeah. Not worth okay. not worth it. Someone said here's a bunch of money, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I guess. Like so. this movie. <laughs> and Jesse Eisenberg and who's the other one? Emma Stone. Emma Stone, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I there was when it was announced I was like that was like on my maybe list. I was like, okay, like yeah. I I liked the Same. first don't, one. Don't waste your money or your time, especially okay. not your time. <laughs> uh, another good bit was they had a post credit scene. Uh, they referenced killing Bill Murray in the first movie. Sure, yeah. Uh, and they had a post credit scene where they're like, hey, we're sorry we killed him so he couldn't be in this movie, but here's our apology. And they show Bill Murray doing interviews for like a fake Garfield sequel. Okay. And then like the zombie apocalypse from the first one starts to happen during this like press junket. Got it. Like that was an amusing okay. scene. It was okay. probably more fun than any scene in the rest of the movie. <laughs> so find the after credit sequence and watch that. Yeah. This is why good. Gremlins 2 is the best sequel of all time. Because... Yeah. Joe, Hold on. <laughs> I don't want to let that just slide by. Yeah. Gremlins 2 better than Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> better <laughs> Godfather than Part Godfather 2. 2. I, <laughs> I, okay. I think so. And I'll, I'll, I'll go the mat on this one. Okay, okay continue. Gremlins 2, the, the uh, thesis of Gremlins 2 is that sequels are not possible <laughs> and a pure money grab. <laughs> and so rather than make a sequel that just retreads the first film mm -hmm. just make a movie that says fuck you <laughs> to the studio that was funding it <laughs> and that it's movie making is like over and that there's no point and that what they're doing is a cartoon and stupid yeah and uh makes fun of uh trump okay okay uh, yeah there's like because uh, trump was terrible then too. yeah yeah throughout his life yeah and <laughs> The whole point of Gremlins 2 is you, you don't need sequels. They're not. There's there's no reason for them. They're just a retread of the first film, and there's no point to them. Wow. And actually, movies in general are dumb, and we shouldn't make them. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I should watch. That's a really have, angry screenwriter. Do I need to have seen Gremlins one? In in the sense that Gremlins one is like a normal like eighties horror comedy, right? And then to see the contrast between that and the absurdist post narrative film that is <laughs> wow. Gremlins 2 that distinctly says within the film that this is a cartoon and literalizes that by taking Looney Tunes characters and putting them on screen. Um, wow. Yeah. Space I, Jam style? Space yes. Yes. And it's a great film. It's very funny and is, I think, actually a very important film. Okay. Philosophically a very important film. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. All right. Well. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay, uh, my, my pick next? <laughs> yep. Yes. Okay, well, you might have moved me. Maybe I want to pick Gremlins 2 now. But I'll, I'll... Yeah, you totally should. Okay. Well, no. <laughs> you, need, you need to get them as a, as a pair. As but... a package? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to pick Gremlins 2. I'm, I'm going to pick Blowout, as this is the Brian De Palma, uh, John Travolta political thriller that I haven't seen, but I've heard it's good, um, and, I've, and I've seen the Antonioni movie that it, it inspired it, so I want to get the full context here. Cool. Cool. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, if you're liking the show, please share it and like it and comment. Um, it, it does make a difference. We are on SoundCloud and Facebook and iTunes and Google Play and, I don't know, St uh, Stitcher, maybe. I I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> a few things. Um, and join us next week for Blowout.